Last evening we talked about making things right, correct? And uh, before that we talked about what's to confess. And we've covered a lot of territory, and we want to continue covering territory this evening. Um, this evening we're going to start uh, a section called uh, On Repentance. In the, uh, in the little booklet, or when you first came, we entitled it Repentance is More Than Feeling Sorry. So uh, we're going to look at that in just a moment. Uh, but before we do, I'd like to have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I want to thank you that when we come into your presence together and we pray together, that we can ask that you send angels and keep Satan away, that we might learn. Father, my heart is so warmed by the people that are coming out and, and, and learning and and coming back to learn more. This isn't easy uh, information to, to digest or to accept. But Lord, there are people here who want to be serious. I want to be serious. Rose wants to be serious. What that means, Lord, on a practical basis, only you understand because our hearts are deceitful. We don't even understand ourselves. But Lord, I ask that again this evening you would come into our midst and that you would do spiritual surgery on each one of our hearts can't speak for anyone else, but I need it as much as they do. And so here we are with our heads bowed before you, admitting how much we need you to bless us. I'm the mouthpiece, but they need to hear from you through me. That's a sobering thing. So please apply the blood of Jesus liberally to Dan and to my friends here. And send the Holy Spirit in great, great measure, Lord, that we would have soft hearts and receptive minds and a willingness to receive and accept. Lord, it's easy to say, it's true we've made mistakes. It's true to admit it to each other. But to really repent and make the resolve we're going to change, that's harder, and we want to learn about that. We're going to learn about it over a couple of evenings, but please send help now. Father, make my words clear, and make your word clear, for Jesus' sake. And I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, look in your Bibles at the book of Joel. Let's find where I am. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 14. It says there, actually verse 13, but we'll start with verse 12. Joel chapter 2, 12 and 13. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with what? With all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. It says there that we should rend our hearts and not just our, our garments. When you, when you read about this matter of transformation and, and of, of the repentance that doesn't need to be repented of, it must be something that comes out of the heart. It's easy to just say, I want to do it, but to truly ask God to come in and make an entire change is, 
is something much, much greater. Um, at line 531 in your booklets, it says, It is humiliating for us to acknowledge that we have done wrong, but this is often necessary. This afternoon I've been reading some things I'm going to share with you. Line 531. It is humiliating for us to acknowledge that we have done wrong, but this is often necessary. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer will draw down from heaven great blessings when those who claim to believe the truth shall come down from their stilts of self-exaltation and afflict their souls, even as Daniel afflicted his. In other words, when we get serious with God, God gets serious with us. What is the first sermon of the Bible? Who can tell me? What is the first sermon of the Bible? When you, when you think of, or maybe I should say the, the, the first sermon of the, well, I guess I would put it that way, but the first sermon of the New Testament, what is the, what was the subject matter? Do you remember? You can find it in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the first sermon of John the Baptist. Now if you would turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus took up the very same sermon in his ministry, the, the sermon regarding repentance. Now, look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 12. Mark chapter 6, verse 12. It says, um, this is where Jesus is sending out the twelve, starting in verse 7. It says, and he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two, and what? Gave them power. God gave them supernatural power for their ministry. And that's something that we can count on in our day. Told them how to go. Not uh, taking staff, uh, going on their journey. Uh, nothing except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper, etc. But to wear tu- sandals and not to put on two tunics. Told them a lifestyle to take. Told them what to do. And so, so they went out and preached what? The people should repent. The, the message of the disciples was as well. The message of repentance. Then in the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Acts 2, 38. Peter's preaching to the people. Uh, he makes a strong statement. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Once again, the message was the message of repentance. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Somehow, there was a need for repentance before the Holy Spirit could come. Okay, Acts 17, verse 30. Now Paul is talking, I believe. 17, verse 30. It says there, Paul is actually speaking to the 
Athenians, I believe, at this point. And he makes a statement. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So God now gives a command that all should repent. This was the message that, that Paul was preaching there. Look at Acts chapter 26. Acts 26 verse 19. Now he's speaking to King Agrippa. And he's speaking of, of, of his experience, starting in verse 17. Uh, actually, uh, he's being spoken to by the Lord. Verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith to me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance. Paul, once again, was busy preaching the message of repentance and telling them that this repentance apparently included a turn, a change, and included doing those works which are befitting of repentance. You know, if, uh, if a man is married and he does something and he tells his wife, I'm sorry, but he never changes, has he really repented? Not at all. And we can admit, we can admit, but unless we're prepared to change, it really doesn't mean a whole lot, does it? Now, I'm not minimizing, I'm not minimizing at all that it's not easy to change. Especially if we try and do it in our own strength. But the first step is to admit that we are wrong and make the decision that we will change. Uh, we find the message of repentance as well in the book of Revelation. Look, if you would, at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. This is to the church in Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Revelation 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, this verse, I believe, has special significance for us as a church because God truly gave us a very special light for the world, didn't he? He gave us a very special message. And in their first love experience, those early believers literally did whatever they could to let people know that Jesus was coming. I am not convinced that any of us, and I'm saying myself, we all need heart surgery, right? that any of us have the zeal that our early pioneers had to let people know that Jesus is coming. And the sad thing is, in verse 5, it says, Repent and do the first works. Go back to what was there before, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. In other words, we have an extra responsibility to have that. Then look at chapter uh, 2, verse 16. This is with the, now the, the compromising church. 
Okay? Uh, starting uh, with verse 15 and 16. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them uh, with the sword of my mouth. Okay? God says, repent, or I will come quickly. Look at verse uh, 21. Here it's to the church of Thyatira. It says, God knows about their works, their love, their service, their faith, your patience, etc. Nevertheless, verse 20, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. Once again, repentance is there. We are living at a later time in history when these things did not first uh, develop, but I believe at one point, uh, I believe that God was trying hard to keep those who claim to be Christians faithful, but Satan was successful in introducing a false prophet. And we, and we read, and many false things came in at that time. And, and sadly, today, we don't look to false prophets, but we certainly look to society, don't we? We continue. Look at chapter 3 now, verse 3. This is to the angel in Sardis. Verse 3. Well, actually, start in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead um, was the is the Laodicean church a busy church very busy church but there in verse 1 it says you're alive be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die for I have not found your works perfect before God remember therefore how you received and heard hold fast and repent okay once again there's the message of repentance and then later to the uh, Laodicean church. And we'll start back in verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and what? And repent. Be zealous and, and change. Be zealous and change. Quotation on line 546. The Old and New Testament Scriptures, line 546. The Old and New Testament Scriptures show us the only way in which this work should be done. Repent Repent, repent was the message rung out by John the Baptist in the wilderness. Christ's message to the people was, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And the apostles were commanded to preach everywhere that men should repent. And the next one as well. There is no evidence of genuine repentance unless it works reformation. If you restore the pledge, give again that he had robbed, confess his sins and love God and his fellow men, the sinner may be sure that he has passed from death unto life. Okay? Do you know if you have genuine repentance is shared right there. The evidence of genuine repentance will always work reformation. 
And then it lists those things. If you restore the pledge, give again that which he robbed, confess his sins, love God, his fellow men, etc., they may be sure. Okay. What causes us to feel sorry? What are the things that cause us to have this, this, uh, this sense of, of, of sorrow that brings about change? Romans 2.4. It's right there in your booklet, 556. The goodness of God leads to repentance. I have to tell you a story about... Uh, my own experience that kind of brings this out. Um, some of you probably know that I've been married once before and I have two daughters. Uh, Rose is God's gift to me. Very recently, we've been married all of about 18 months at this point. But um, I have two daughters and when they were younger, the great highlight of, of Dad's day was to call them in the evening. And my girls are darlings. I love my girls. And uh, I would call them every evening, you know, knowing that they didn't have a lot of time, but I would call them. And, you know, often we would have wonderful conversations. And I thrilled. You know, I was just happy as can be. But sometimes they'd say, Dad, we love you, but we're busy. You know, we have to work on homework or whatever. And I was disappointed. Sometimes I would call and, and call, you know, want to talk and they'd say, Dad, we love you, but we're actually watching something on television. Or, you know, we love you, but we're playing a game, or we're, we're just tied up. You know, we love you, but we just can't talk with you. And it would just break my heart. And I used to get so upset. Can't you give me a few minutes? And then one day, the Lord spoke to me and said, by the way, Dan, have you never said you love me, but you're too busy? And I suddenly realized that everything that frustrated me I was doing the same thing in my relationship to God. And I'd like to suggest it's when we actually see ourselves, which is very hard to do, that we begin to appreciate how much God loves us and how kind he is and how merciful he is, even though we are terribly unmerciful. Okay? Repentance comes as a result of our love for Jesus, not because someone causes you to feel guilty or, or condemned. That's not what really brings repentance. It's because you realize how much Jesus loves you. And notice this wonderful quotation, 557. The Spirit of God will answer the cry of every penitent heart. For repentance is what? Is the gift of God. And in evidence that Christ is drawing the soul to himself. Notice, we can no more repent of sin without Christ then we can be pardoned without Christ. And yet it is a humiliation to man with his human passion and pride to go to Jesus straightway, believing and trusting him for everything which he needs, which includes repentance. You cannot be pardoned without Christ. You cannot repent without Christ either. Both of them are a gift. So you don't need to sit here and worry and say, Dan, I just can't do that. That's something else to pray for and to believe for because that is a gift that comes from God. Okay? Now, I want to share a few things with you now. I was going to put it on PowerPoint, but I'll read just a little bit of this, and I think you'll be able to understand, because I want to raise the bar on, on, on where God wants us to be as a people. So please forgive me. I, 
I thought I had what I needed, but I didn't. This comes from an article in Councils to the Churches on keeping the Sabbath. It would be a pity to have a week of revival and not talk about the Sabbath. She was talking about the fact that some people send their children to school on Sabbath. And she makes the following statement. Some parents have tried to justify their course by quoting the words of Christ that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath day. But the same reasoning would prove that men may labor on the Sabbath because they must earn bread for their children. Okay? Now, I don't think there's anyone sending their kids you know, to school on the Sabbath. I'm grateful. But I know that in certain parts of the world, that happens, unfortunately. I've had conversations with people in some parts of the world where that is an unfortunate part of it. And I'm thrilled to say that in some parts of the world, the young people have taken the, the, the position they will not break the Sabbath uh, in going to school or taking examinations on the Sabbath. And it's thrilling the way that God has delivered them uh, multiple ways, multiple times. I mean, some of these stories deserve to be made into books. Young people who said, I don't care if I... For example, I know one man, his name is David, who said, I don't care if I go to school for five extra years uh, because, you know, I can't pass without taking the examinations, and they're usually on Sabbath. I will keep going back to school year after year after year. As it were, he only had to, to go one extra year, but he ended up as the top student in medical school. And... Uh, Everyone watched him because, you know, the school always tried to help him but did try to do it in a way that he would flunk so that he would no longer be a problem. And his friends would tell him, David, there's just no way, no way that God's going to keep you. But every time he just amazed everyone. So Muslims and Hindus, he, actually, he lives in India. Uh, they would just be in awe at the way that his God was taking care of him. Truly, it's amazing. And I've seen those, those, those stories and heard those testimonies from students over there that just said, we are not going to break the Sabbath. It's a wonderful thing, a wonderful thing. Now notice what she says, though. These, these are things to really think about. Our brethren cannot expect the approval of God while they place their children where it is impossible for them to obey the fourth commandment. They should endeavor to make some arrangement with the authorities whereby the children shall be excused from attendance to school upon the seventh day. If this fails, notice, then their duty is plain to obey God's requirements at whatever cost. Okay, now, when my dad was a young man, he lived in Switzerland, and there was school on Sabbath. And in his case, his father would pay a small fine the first Sabbath of the month, a larger fine the second Sabbath, a larger fine the third, and he would go to jail the fourth Sabbath of the month so that his child wouldn't have to go to, uh, to school. And it was actually while Ellen White was in Europe, the parents were saying, you know, we really need to send our kids to school. She said, no, do all you can to make arrangements, but when everything is said and done, if it doesn't work out, take the consequences. And that is true as well for, for uh, the Sabbath and, and, and the job world as well. Uh, I have a good friend who, uh, actually it's an amazing story of answered prayer. There's a, a young woman who came to some seminars I was holding in Toronto where I shared my testimony of how God can answer specific prayers. And so she began praying specifically for, uh, she was Korean, but she wanted to marry a Chinese man who was five foot 11, who was studying economics, would love the Lord uh, uh, even more than he would love her. He prayed, she prayed very specifically, and eventually God brought uh, a Chinese man who was 5 foot 11, who was studying economics, who loved her but loved the Lord even more. It's just amazing uh, how God answered that prayer so specifically, and I really believe that God can answer specific prayers in that regard. 
Anyway, she explained to me how, how it was thrilling, how God had provided her, her, uh, her fiancé, who later uh, married her, how God had provided him a job just a few weeks before uh, they got married so that they would have the finances to, to go to school. It was in a bank, and praise God. But as the end of the summer came, and there came the danger of traveling on Sabbath, um, he went to his bank manager, who happened to be a Hindu woman, and said, I'm not able to, to work all the way to the end of the day on Friday because I, I, I cannot work here after, after sunset. I have to leave before. And she assured him that their bank was not going to put up with anyone leaving early because of some kind of religious belief. And so uh, Julia, his wife, just wrote and said, please pray for Wilson. Please pray for Wilson. Because he's told the, 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 the manager, this, this woman, that even if it means his job, uh, he will lose his job. And this is Dan's paraphrase. This isn't exact uh, you know, words from the email. But anyway, so we all prayed. And uh, didn't know what was going to happen. And one day, something very strange happened. Uh, the bank manager on Monday called everyone into the office and said, I need to tell you, you know, what went on today, in her department anyway. And she said, over the weekend, I watched a movie called Fiddler on the Roof. And this is strange. This is an old movie, and this is a Hindu woman. Why would she be watching a movie from way back then? And she said, I watched this movie and explained about, you know, the plot and how this was a Jewish man, and he kept the Sabbath, which started sundown and went to sundown, you know, and then at the end of it said, and Wilson keeps the Sabbath like this Jewish man, then told them all to leave. And later she called him back in and said, Wilson, I just want you to know, I want you to work for our bank. God had intervened in, in allowing her to watch this movie that few people watch anymore to convict her that there was a legitimate reason why he wanted to keep the Sabbath and therefore told him, you're excused. And he had told her, in no unmistakable terms, if it means I lose my job, I will lose my job instead of disobeying God. Now she added one other thing. She said to him, and I'm leaving out details, she, she added one other thing. She said, I want to see what your God can do. And she gave him a sales goal that was much, much higher. And she told him, I don't think you can achieve that, but I want to see what your God can do. And uh, from that moment, Julia told me, his sales just went to the sky. And he became the top salesman, and he met those sales goals. Why? Because he was being faithful to God. Now let me throw something in that you may have never thought about. It struck me when I was in India speaking that if you study the book of Daniel and all of Daniel's witnessing, do you know what it was based on? Was it based on his charisma? His eloquence? His prayers? It was all obedience-based. It was because Daniel obeyed that Daniel became known. It was because Daniel obeyed that God was able to bless him. And we are shooting ourselves in the foot if we choose not to obey. Did you hear me? And God has made the Sabbath his special mark in our lives. It is more than just a seventh day to rest, but it is the day when we honor God. And it is the special mark that identifies us as Seventh-day Adventists. We continue. Some will urge... Now reading again. That the Lord is not so particular in his requirements that it is not their duty to keep the Sabbath strictly at so great loss or to place themselves where they will be brought in conflict with the laws of the land. But here is just where the test is coming, whether we will honor the law of God above the requirements of men. This is what will distinguish between those who honor God and those who dishonor him. In other words, the Sabbath is the great mark of loyalty to God. 
And then she says, If parents allow their children to receive an education with the world and make the Sabbath a common day, then the seal of God cannot be placed upon them. They will be destroyed with the world. And, the blood, and their blood will rest upon the parents. But if we faithfully teach our children God's commandments, bring them into subjection to parental authority, and then by faith and prayer commit them to God, he will work with our efforts, for he has promised it. In other words, God has promised that when you obey me, I will be able to bless you in a greater measure. And then she goes further. It is the grossest presumption for mortal man to venture upon a compromise with the Almighty in order to secure his own petty temporal interest. She says this is, a, this is a gross presumption, the grossest presumption. It is a, as ruthless a violation of the law to occasionally use the Sabbath for secular business as to entirely reject it. She says if you occasionally give yourself a pass, she says that's as, as if you had completely rejected the Sabbath. Strong language. Uh, Councils to Churches, 269, uh, paragraph... Two, and I can actually post this on uh, on my website. Uh, I have I'm putting up the sermons pretty much every day, and I can post this there as well for all of you. But anyway, I continue. Um, for it is making the Lord's commandments a matter of convenience. No partial obedience, no divided interest is accepted by him who declares that the iniquities of the father shall be visited upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of them that hate him. And then she goes further. It is not a small matter to rob a neighbor, and great is the stigma attached to one who is found guilty of such an act. Yet he who would scorn to defraud his fellow men will without shame rob his heavenly Father of the time that he is blessed and set apart for a special purpose. In other words, she's saying that, you know, we would not think of robbing our neighbor, and it would cause, it would bring stigma and consequences, but she says without hardly thinking, we do the same thing relative to God. Okay? Then, notice this. Are we listening? You are, aren't you? The words and thoughts should be guarded. Those who discuss business matters and lay plans on the Sabbath are regarded of God as though they engage in the actual transactions of business. To keep the Sabbath holy, we should ev not even allow our minds to dwell upon things of a worldly character. She says that if we even talk about business on the Sabbath, that it's as if we were actually doing those things on the Sabbath. And that surprised me. That surprised me. I had not read that before. God has spoken and he means that man shall obey. He does not inquire if it is convenient for him to do so. The Lord of life and glory did not consult his convenience or pleasure when he left his station of high command to become a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, etc. Okay? Then she goes on to talk about, you know, your circumstances, your age, etc. None of those things give you a pass from obeying. She also says, it is displeasing to God for Sabbath keepers to sleep during much of Sabbath. They dishonor their creator in so doing and by their example say that the six days are too precious for them to spend in resting, that they must make money although it is by robbing themselves of needed sleep which they make up by sleeping away holy time. Okay, so when we talk about lay activities, referring to that which is prone, you know, on our bed Sabbath afternoon she says that's not right because you're in effect saying I'm so busy 
making money during the week, that I rob myself of sleep during the week so that I actually, I just use the Sabbath for a different purpose than God ever intended. Okay? They should upon that day especially interest their families in its observance and assemble at the house of prayer with the few or with the many as the case may be. They should devote their time and their energies to spiritual exercises that the, the divine influence resting upon the Sabbath may attend them through the week. Of all the days in the week, none are so favorable for devotional thoughts and feelings as the Sabbath. And she even makes a statement, had the Sabbath been truly kept, there would be no atheist in the world. There would be no atheist in the world. Anyway. Um, so what do you think? Do you think that there's some repenting to do even perhaps relative to the Sabbath? Yeah. And as I said, I've traveled enough to know that it's a, a very real issue in some parts of the world. And actually, I think it's more of an issue here than probably we realize sometimes, too. Um, now, here's another little document. I won't read as much of this, but this has to do with truly living for what we should be living for, if I can put it that way. This was actually a camp meeting appeal. So it was made to everyone that was there, not just to a small group of people. She says, the Lord has seen our backsliding and he has a controversy with his people. Their pride, their selfishness, their opening of the mind to doubt and unbelief are seen. They grieve his heart of love. So God sees us as we really are. Many gather darkness about their souls as a garment and virtually say, we do not want to know your way. I'm using slightly simpler words here than what she writes. Um, but it means the same thing. We not a knowledge of thy way. That's I said, we don't want to know your ways. These are the things which separate the soul from God. There is in the soul of man an obstacle which he holds there with stubborn persistency which interposes between his soul and God, which stands between his soul and God. That is unbelief. Okay? Why is it that men do not believe? And this is interesting what she says, because they do not want to be convinced. In other words, as long as you say, I don't believe, guess what? Who can hold you to what you don't feel is really there if the evidence is lacking? But she makes a statement. She says it's, it's not because the evidence is not there. It's because we have arbitrarily chosen to refuse the evidence that is clear. And I think that this is more true than we sometimes realize. They have no disposition to give up their own will for God's will. They are willing to acknowledge that they have cherished sinful unbelief. They have been hunting for doubts like pegs upon which to hang their unbelief. In other words, they look for reasons to not have to go forward and further with God. If they will bow their proud wills and put it on God's side of the question, if they will with humble, contrite heart seek for light, believing that there is light for them, then they will see the light because then the eye will be single to discern the light which comes from God. I made this statement earlier this week, and I'll repeat it again, or last week, I guess. And that is, we often talk about how hard it is to obey. 
But I'm really not convinced that the issue is obedience at all. It is, do we really trust God enough to believe that what he says is right and will bless us? Did you hear what I'm saying? I don't struggle to, quote unquote, do things you know, for Rose because I have to obey her. I do it because I love her. And when we know God and we trust God, he will take us uh, further than we would ever do just based on, on, on feeling condemned or something. That's from the Paulson Collection, page 337, starting about paragraph 2. Let me share a few other things. It is in looking to Jesus and beholding his loveliness, having our eyes steadfastly fixed upon him, that we become changed into his image. He will give grace to all who keep his way and do his will and walk in truth. Okay? God gives grace to all who keep his way, who do his will, and walk in truth. But those who love their own way, who worship their ideas of opinion, and do not love God and obey his word, they will continue to walk in darkness, and how terrible is unbelief. Okay? And she says, The displeasure and judgments of God are against those who persist in walking in their own ways, loving self. Just picking out a few things, a few paragraphs. She says, In our largest churches, the greatest evils exist because these have the greatest light. The leaven of unbelief is working unless these evils which bring the displeasure of God are corrected in its members. Notice, the whole church stands accountable. Not sure what to even do with that. The deep movings of the Spirit of God are not with them. Many come to assembly as worshipers like a door upon its hinges. They have eyes, but they see not. Ears have they, but they hear not. They continue in their evil ways, yet regard themselves as the privileged, obedient people who are doers of the word. That's surprising. She says these are people who, who have all kinds of problems uh, with disbelief, etc., with the displeasure of God, and yet they believe themselves to be the privileged, obedient people. Then she talks about some of the issues. Will the church see where she has fallen? A coldness, a hardness of heart, a want of sympathy for the brethren exist in the church, an absence of love for the erring. There's a withdrawing from the very ones who need pity and help. Okay? They are lifted up in self-esteem and self-assurance. The widow and the fatherless have not their sympathy or love. Then she says the road to paradise is not one of self-exaltation, but of repentance, confession, humiliation of faith, and obedience. Now I don't want to go too much longer. Maybe we should just make a copy of this, Jay, and give it to everyone. It's really quite thought-provoking. The point is this. We have been given wonderful, wonderful light as a church. God means for us to be a holy, happy, loving people. We should have a sense of urgency for that message. And we should not accept that which is unacceptable. In other words, if our churches are cold, we cannot just sit there and say, what are we going to do? We can't do anything. We'll just kind of go on sleepily. 
somewhere someone has to say, we better start praying. Because at some level, we will be held accountable for what doesn't go on. I believe that with all my heart. So, um, if you would, look at 578, just a few last paragraphs here. There is need today of such a revival of true heart religion as was experienced by ancient Israel. Repentance is the first step that must be taken by all who would return to God. No one can do this work for another. We must individually humble ourselves before God and put away our idols. When we've done all that we can do, the Lord will manifest to us his salvation. So this is an individual work. I've said it before. I would love for every member here to say, I'm going to be a committee of one. And by the grace of God, I'm going to be as faithful and true to God as I possibly can be. And if the entire church does that, I am convinced that revival will come. Okay? Now, 590. Unless this converting power shall go through our churches, unless the revival of the Spirit of God shall come, all their profession will never make the members of the church Christian. There are sinners in Zion who need to repent of sins that have been cherished as precious treasures until these sins are seen and thrust from the soul, until every faulty, unlovely trait of character is transformed by the Spirit's influence. God cannot manifest himself in power. Okay? We have to be serious. We need to be saying, God, what is it? What is it? Show us. Show me. 598. Who is willing to take himself in hand? Who is willing to lay his finger upon his cherished idols of sin and allow Christ to purify the temple by casting out the buyer's and the sellers. At the end of 603, stop trying to do the work yourself. Ask God to work in and through you until the words of the apostle become yours. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Okay? Let Christ come in and do the work. Final one, and this is one of my favorite quotations now from the writings of Ellen White, and I believe Jay is a personal ministry leader. You need to, to know about this one. It says, God rebukes his people for their sins that he may humble them and lead them to seek his face. Only Jesus can change us. And God humbles us that we might seek his face. As they reform and his love revives in their hearts, his loving answers will come to their requests. One of the things that will be seen is we'll begin to see prayers answered. He will strengthen them how? in reformatory action. Actually, the strengthening comes as, as we allow God to change our lives, lifting up for them a standard against the enemy. His rich blessings will rest upon them, and in bright rays they will reflect the light of heaven. Notice, then a multitude, not of their faith, seeing that God is with his people, will unite with them in serving the Redeemer. Isn't that wonderful? It's when people actually see that Jesus is living in our hearts and that Jesus is living in the body of his church. People will realize then that God is truly with us. And then I love that word she uses, then a multitude not of our faith will join us. What? Will unite with us in serving the Redeemer. I believe that ultimately that's the secret of church growth. When people actually see true Christians, I believe the Holy Spirit will send people to the back door. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.